Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. to go in our nativity scene, uh, but I have been so far unsuccessful. Uh, maybe I will try to make them. But this is a strange picture, isn't it? This vision that John sees is a vision of the birth of Jesus. But instead of seeing a humble uh, Jewish woman in poverty bearing a child in humble circumstances, he sees a queen in the heavens uh, dressed in stars giving birth to a child. Instead of seeing a normal baby born the normal way, he sees a child, a shepherd, born to rule the world with, an, with, a, with a rod of iron. Instead of Herod uh, sending out his soldiers to try to snuff out the young life of the coming king, he sees a, ten, a, a seven-headed dragon trying to devour the baby before he could come of age. You see, what, what, what Revelation is doing for us is it's painting what we would see if we could see what was happening at the birth of Jesus from heaven's perspective. That this is the climactic act of a cosmic battle that's been raging uh, throughout the pages of Scripture and which will come to an end. This is the story of God's defeat of evil, his defeat of death and sin and Satan, here in the most humble and surprising of ways. Vern Poitras is a brilliant man, a brilliant thinker. He holds uh, PhDs in mathematics from Harvard and theology from Cambridge. He tells uh, the story of teaching about revelation in a church setting, and he began to teach on revelation, and he looked out and he saw, like tonight, that there were children present. And he saw parents start to get squeamish about having their children. You know, are are my children going to have nightmares of this seven-headed red dragon? And Poitras, what he said was, no, no, I want the children to be in. In fact, I think children, you need to read Revelation. If you can't read Revelation, you ought to have your parents read it to you because you can understand it. And in some ways, you might understand it better than your parents and have to explain it to them. And after he was done talking, a 12-year-old came up to him. And he said, I know exactly what you mean. A short time ago, I read Revelation and I felt that I understood it. Poitras said, praise the Lord. He said, I read it just like a fantasy, except that I knew that it was true. And Poitras thought exactly. That's precisely it. Here's a multi-PhD man being instructed by a 12-year-old. The Revelation is like a fantasy, but true. And that's what we see in this story. It does point us to a true myth, a true fantasy, the, the stuff that we read about and tell stories about and, and, and kind of all societies have intuited, that this world is a cosmic battle between good and evil, that there are eternal cosmic forces that are for you, right? It's amazing to know that the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is for you. He made you in love. He desires to know you, to have a relationship with you. 
He sent his son for you, that God is for you. But there is one who is against you. That there is an enemy who is against God and who is against us, who seeks to inhibit us and destroy us. And here in this beautiful and stirring vision, we see how that cosmic battle comes to its climax. Let's look at these three characters. It's a simple story that, that essentially just has three characters. There's a dragon, there's a baby, and there's a woman. The dragon, oddly enough, uh, is probably the easiest one to figure out. Uh, rarely in Revelation is one of John's visions uh, translated so clearly. He tells us exactly who the dragon is. That he is, uh, in verse 9, the ancient serpent who is, serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. Right in Genesis, uh, it's actually one of the stories that we read at the beginning of our service. Uh, We see a garden. God made Adam and Eve, our first parents, and placed them in a garden where they would live with him. But also in that garden, there was a serpent who tempted them towards life apart from God, who tempted them to leave uh, what God had told them, to distrust God, to deceive them, as we're told and to look on their own for life. This serpent first comes into the story in Genesis. We don't know anything else about him. We don't know what he's doing there. We don't know how he got there. Right? There's a story uh, that seized certainly the Western imagination of a rebellion in heaven, uh, of an angel and his, his, his other angels getting thrown down to earth. That story has more to do with John Milton and Paradise Lost, if you can remember back uh, to your English classes, uh, than it does with the scriptures. The scriptures don't give us the origin story of the villain uh, in the way that we would like. But instead, what we know is that here in the beauty of God's creation, there exists evil. There exists uh, the deceiver, Satan. We know a little bit about him, that he's not another god. This isn't one good god and then a counterfeit god. He's a created being that exists under God's authority. Which raises the question, why? What's he doing there? Right? If God made the world, as we're told, very good. He made it beautiful. He made it with the crown of his creation, men and women. Why is there evil in the world? Why is there sin? Why is there personal forces of evil like Satan? And unfortunately, uh, this is one that theologians and philosophers have spilled tons of ink over to basically get to the answer, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know why a good and loving God permits evil for a time to exist in his world and to even seem at times like it's flourishing. We don't have all of the answers that we would long for about why that is. And while that may frustrate us, I think ultimately I'm glad that that's the answer. Uh, When you stand in the midst of a children's cancer ward and try to come up with explanations for why, for why evil and sickness exists, or you walk through a concentration camp, or you even think about some chapters of your own life, some dark places in your own life, Attempts to explain it and to answer why ultimately fall flat and ring hollow. Ultimately, we're left to look to one another and to say, why? Why, God, does this exist? And the good news is that the God of the Bible, while he may not answer all of our questions as airtightly as we wish, he doesn't deal with the problem of evil and suffering by explaining it away. He deals with it by defeating it. 
He deals with the problem of evil by taking it on and promising us that he will eradicate it one day from his world. That one day there will be no more sin, sickness, violence, evil, or suffering. And that's the meaning uh, of this vision. That's why the dragon is enraged as the baby comes to be born. And so that brings us to the next character, the child to be born. The child pictured here is Jesus. He's the one that we've read about. He's the one that we've sang about tonight. He's the one that was prophesied by the prophets. He's the Emmanuel that we sang, come, O come, Emmanuel. Come, the ruler that was promised, the one who we're told here would shepherd the entire world with strength and power. From Genesis onward, from Genesis 3 on, from the moment that the serpent enters into the scene, we see that there's a conflict that comes between the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, her children, and the serpent. As we read, uh, God promises, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's speaking to the snake, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word used here for he shall bruise your uh, head is much stronger uh, than bruise. It's much stronger than what the serpent will do to him. It could really, in some translations, it's, it's translated, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. There was this promised one who would come that though the, the dragon would wage war against him, that he would ultimately be the one to crush uh, the head of the serpent. And so finally, there's the woman. She's proven less easy uh, to identify uh, in church history. Some have identified her in a way that seems rather straightforward, that she's obviously Mary, right? If you've got a baby being born and the baby is Jesus, then his mother is, as we know, Mary. And the woman, I believe, is actually, it is Mary and it's more than Mary, right? We said that from the very beginning, there was this conflict between Eve and all of her offspring, which is all of us and the forces of evil, that this woman represents faithful humanity, that she is uh, God's promised re- uh, preservation of a faithful people through whom he would work to crush his enemy. Mary is, of course, an example of that faithful people par excellence, right? A woman who in the midst of deep uncertainty, confusion, hearing news too wonderful to believe, says, here I am, I'm your servant. Right? She is an exemplar of faith. But we're told later in Revelation that that line continues beyond her. That the line of God's faithful people in the world is made up now of you and me. Of people who trust in the Son by faith become agents in God's great drama of pushing back the darkness and defeating evil. And so the male child that's born is the he that was promised, the offspring of Eve that would crush the head of the dragon. And because the dragon knows that he's come to crush him, he rages against him. He tries to devour him at first. Right? We believe that that initially this is a reference to Herod's enraged attempt when he heard that another king was to be born to, to kill every child born at that age in order to try to, to eradicate uh, this, this competitor to his throne. Now, in the story that it's presented here, the dragon tries to get him, he's born, and then he's taken up into heaven, right? This is uh, a story that's essentially the bookends of the Gospels. He's born, 
and then he ascends to the throne of his father. And you have to read the rest of the gospels to fill out the rest of the story, right? That Jesus did obviously a whole lot more than get born and then get taken up into heaven, right? That there is a story that goes on uh, between there. Because while the serpent didn't get Jesus through his attempts through Herod, he didn't get him as a baby, he didn't stop pursuing Jesus, right? He pursued him into the wilderness in his temptation, right? Where he tempted him three times towards power and to avoid the cross. And yet Jesus resisted that temptation. He pursued him through the Jewish religious leaders of the time that sought to test him and to expose him. He sought him through the Roman political powers of the time that ultimately sought to kill him. He pursued him through into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was tempted, where he was tempted again, we're told, to the point of sweating blood. And yet he, whereas Adam and Eve were tested in a garden and failed, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, not my will, but yours be done, and went to the cross This seven-headed dragon continued to snap at Jesus' heel all through the gospel story. And finally on the cross, he drew blood. Finally on the cross, he struck the sun. He bit at him. He broke him. He swallowed him whole. In that moment, uh, the dragon thought he had finally got what he had been after since the baby was born. And yet on the third day, Jesus rose again defeating finally once and for all sin, sickness, death, and Satan himself, triumphing over the dragon by death. And so Satan falls. That's what's going on in these, these final verses where Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fight back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And we end with this joyful chorus. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Again, we don't know as much as we'd like to know about the role of Satan in the Bible, the role of evil in the world. But one thing that we know from the Old Testament uh, is that in the Old Testament, uh, Satan seems to have had access to the heavenly court, right? We see it in Job when he goes to try to test a good man, believing that he'll abandon his faith. We see it later in Zechariah when he goes and accuses the high priest before God. So we see Satan in the Old Testament playing essentially the role of a prosecutor in a courtroom, that he goes before God, the judge of the universe, in order to make accusations against people to condemn them before God is guilty. And friends, that is where our ultimate problem in this life comes from. Because none of us can plead innocent before God. Right? Evil and sin and all this stuff, it's not a problem ultimately that's out there, outside of us. That ultimately the tragedy of the fall, the tragedy of sin is that it's in us. Right? That each one of us stands guilty in a fundamental way before God. We've broken his law. We break it every single day. Jesus summed up what God requires of us is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves. And against that standard, none of us can stand before God. 
And the good news of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us in his defeat of Satan, is that he now stands where Satan once walked before the throne of God, accusing us. We now have a defender. We have an advocate. We have a counselor who says to God, no, 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 they are, they are innocent in me. I laid down my perfect life, my innocent life, my righteous life, and took all of their guilt, all of their punishment, all of their sin onto me. And Satan, the accuser, is thrown out, meaning whatever else he can do, all of the accusations that he can bring against us, he no longer has an audience with God. That God does not hear his accusations against us, that they fall on deaf ears. So though we are still sinful, still weak, still failing, the accusations no longer stick, that we no longer have an accuser. In his place, we have an advocate, one who pleads for us before God, who counts us righteous in him. In all that you or I do in the midst of this, our place in this story is simply to place our faith in the Son, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who took the, our guilt on himself on the cross. Can you imagine what it would be like to know that you are free from accusation? You know, I don't know about you, but I know that I have a tape that runs in my head at times that points out to me all of the things that are wrong with me, all of the countless ways that I've blown it in some of the ways that matter most to me, the ways that I failed the people I love the most, the ways that I've sought life apart from God. I know what it is to feel guilt. I know what it is to feel shame. And the good news that comes to us here is that those accusations do not reach your father's ear. That by faith in Christ, there's a different tape that can play. There's a different tape that already plays before God that says, these are my children, these are my beloved. And that that can begin to rework the way that you think of yourself, the way that you live in this world. So that we, with all the company of heaven that we see here, could join in singing, rejoice. We could rejoice with the heavens and you who dwell in them because Satan is thrown down, the accuser is no more. And now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser is no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so often for us it's hard to connect the dots between the stories that we've heard and the songs that we know, the baby that was born in Bethlehem. It's hard to connect that sometimes with what's going on in our own hearts, the guilt and the shame that we feel, the doubt that constantly can seem to keep us from you, the despair and the anxiety that keeps us tied up in knots. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us by faith to believe that because of what you've done, because of taking our guilt and our sin on the cross, that we can live in this life free of guilt and accusation. Lord Jesus, help us to trust in the gift of your Son today. For some of us, it may be trusting in that gift for the very first time. For others of, it, of us, it may be finding the faith to trust in that gift again today. 
to rest in your record, not our own, to rest in your life and not our good deeds, and to trust you, to trust you with what weighs us down. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you were born in our shoes, that you took on to yourself all that it means to be human, and for us defeated our greatest enemies. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to worship you and to live in you by faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.